I want to speak tonight about a particular sutta that the Buddha delivered called the Nugahita Sutta. Nugahita is a word in Pali that means protection. And it's a discourse about various ways and means that are available to us so that we can protect ourselves. The first time that I used the word protection in a talk up here, I got a note from somebody immediately afterwards which said that they disagreed with the notion that what we needed in our lives or in our practice here was a sense of protection. What the note said was that we had spent probably far too long in our lives protecting ourselves and that being in a situation like this was an opportunity to envision things in a different way so that we didn't think about protection at all and we could think rather about vulnerability and opening letting go so when it came time for me to be writing this talk I started thinking about that note and about the word protection and the particular way in which I was using it, and in the particular way this person was using it in writing the note. I think the way that the yogi meant it, in the sense of what we have done so much of our lives, at great cost and consequence to ourselves, is to protect ourselves from feeling. To protect, to protect ourselves from being aware and actually experiencing what is happening. Trying to shield or trying to deny or trying to deflect. And so it has had a great cost. The way in which the Buddha used the word and used it with such delight and sense of invitation was in the sense of nurturance or support proper caring and a sense of powerful commitment to be able to protect that which we have given our energy to, to be able to ensure its growth and development, to be able to follow through on commitments and protect that, honor that. There's a concept in Buddhist psychology which is the two parts of which are initial and sustained application. These are seen as two different qualities or attributes. What I mean by the word protection is the sense of sustained application. Not merely initiating something, not just planting the seed, but taking the time, doing the manual labor of the sustained application. There's a word in Pali, two words. One is kalesa bhumi and the other is panya bhumi. Kalesa means defilement. Or more literally translated, torment of the mind. Panya means wisdom or insight. Bhumi means place of occurrence or field within something arises within which something arises. 
It's the context in which something happens. What I found interesting about Kalesa Bhumi, or the field or the place of existence of defilement, and Panya Bhumi, the place of occurrence of wisdom, is that they're identical. And that is the body and the mind. The body and the mind are the base for the occurrence or the arising of the torments of the mind, of the defilements. And the body and the mind are also the base or the place of occurrence for wisdom to arise. When the body and the mind are unobserved or unawakened, then it is the foundation for the arising of defilement. When that exact same body and mind are observed and there is awakening, then it's the ground for wisdom. It's the same thoughts and the same sensations and the same sights and the same sounds. It is not something splendid and magnificent that is the ground for the arising of wisdom as opposed to the ground for the arising of defilement. It is absolutely the same thing, except one is observed, one is taken care with, and the other is not. So it's this sense of transforming the body and the mind from the place of defilement arising to the place of wisdom arising that is the force of protection. So it's like owning a piece of land and either using it well or not using it well, or cultivating a piece of land and either doing this skillfully or not. If we do it skillfully, if we use it well, then we need different kinds of protection to ensure that sustained cultivation. And the Buddha himself used this agricultural example. He said that there are five categories that we have to observe to reap the fruit from this plot of land. The first is the most obvious and the most, it's the grossest in some way. And that is to fence in the plot to protect it from animals coming in from the outside. The second is to have the piece of land and to water it regularly. The third is to loosen the earth around the roots of the plants, and yet not too much, to loosen it just enough so that the roots can grip strongly, but not so much that the roots are exposed. And the fourth aspect of protecting this land and ensuring its cultivation and growth is to remove weeds. And the fifth is to keep away insects, which may be very tiny little bitty creatures, but which actually may have devastating results, be of great harm to the different plants that are growing there. If these five are carried out, then we can very much enjoy the fruits of our efforts. So if we've planted a seed of meditation, we then go on to fulfill these five in order to enjoy the fruit and to live with our bodies and minds as expressions of wisdom and love and generosity rather than as expressions of greed and hatred and delusion. The first of these, the most obvious or the clearest or the grossest, is called Sila Nugahita. 
which is the protection of morality or virtue. So to protect with a sense of commitment to virtue is like building the fence around the plot of land. Keeps away the wild animals. Or, in other words, it keeps away the outrageous defilements. Mm -hmm. So it protects us from suffering due to the karmic consequences of wrong action. If you have a very firm commitment to morality, no matter what feeling may arise at whatever strength, however much you might dislike or despise someone, you can be confident in the knowledge that you will not actually hurt that person. And so there's a kind of protection from having to suffer the consequences of going out and committing wrong action. It also protects us from a sense of alienation from others, born from being the object of people's judgment or born from a sense of fear about how others might judge us were they to actually know. It also protects us from having to suffer (coughs) from inner confusion and turmoil brought about by remorse and regret. So building this fence having a commitment to morality protects us from the worst kind of pain that we know, which is the karmic consequences of these actions and the feeling of loneliness and isolation from others and those intense and turbulent feelings of suffering within brought about by guilt and remorse. And it also functions, having this commitment, (coughs) also functions to open the door to a very clear path to freedom. This is from the Vasudhimaga. Moral discipline is the foundation for the development of restraint. Restraint means not being driven into action by greed or hatred that may have arisen in one's mind. Restraint is the foundation for the development of the absence of remorse which allows us to live without guilt and fear, without hesitation and confusion, and then allows us to die in that same way. Absence of remorse is the foundation for the development of gladdening. This gladdening is the lightness and ease in our hearts that comes from the simplicity (coughs) that is ours when we live with this strong sense of, of caring for others. Gladdening is the foundation for the development of happiness. This happiness is one of peace and composure and strength. (coughs) Happiness is the foundation for the development of tranquility. So we have the possibility of clarity and tranquility rather than the turbulence and the agitation that's produced by worry and remorse. Tranquility is the foundation for the development of concentration, being able to keep the mind steady and one-pointed and powerful and clear. Concentration is the foundation for the development of correct knowledge and vision, seeing things clearly as they truly are. Correct knowledge and vision, knowing that things are impermanent, knowing that they are essenceless, is the foundation for the development of dispassion or equanimity in all circumstances. 
Dispassion is the foundation for the development of the fading away of greed and hatred. The fading away of greed and hatred is the foundation of deliverance. So it's a very clear and direct path. This meditation on the purity of one's conduct to arouse the factor of joy is a very classical one. And there are many, many stories in the scriptures of people getting enlightened, doing vipassana on those feelings of joy. They first do this reflection on good deeds that they've done in the past and then when their being is flooded with joy, they begin to meditate, doing vipassana and developing equanimity towards those feelings, watching how they also change, and thus become enlightened. But of course, to do that, the necessary prerequisite is actually having some things to contemplate (laughs) so that you feel very good about it. And there was one time in Burma where, I don't know if I told you this already once or not in an earlier talk, but... There was somebody meditating um, who, who seemed a little bit despondent and not very happy. The, the kind of joy factor of the meditation didn't seem very present. And Upandita said to this person in the classical way, you should go back and think about your sila, about your morality. And I knew <laughs> that this person <laughs> was going to take that in a completely paranoid fashion <laughs> and think that they were being reprimanded for, for some obvious mishap. But in fact, what Upanditu was saying was the very classical thing to do, to not be meditating from a place of despondency or distress, but to fill the mind with that kind of buoyancy and radiance that comes from that kind of contemplation on one's own morality. So that's the first protection, to have that very basic commitment. A second protection is called sutta nugahita, which is the equivalent of having that plot of land and watering it regularly. This is equivalent to listening to discourses or reading books on the Dhamma because that clarifies the path and so it is a protection. It's like having a weapon. Instead of going into a battle defenseless, you go in with a weapon. It means to know the practical methods and to be able to put them into action. It doesn't have to be very extensive. One doesn't need to be a scholar or have a great deal of knowledge about the path because that would be the equivalent of saying that one has to study medicine in order to effectively take a course of treatment. It's just not so. But it's very good to have an understanding, a theoretical understanding of the practice, because that makes one's path very broad. The Buddha used the example of, he said it makes one's path very broad, like an elephant's path walking through the jungle. Because what happens is that with this kind of protection, which with this kind of understanding, we can see beyond a particular technique. We can understand that 
a particular technique, for example, the one that we've been following here, is a means to an end. It's not an end in itself. It's a way of arousing and cultivating and then bringing into balance certain qualities of mind. You can describe those different qualities depending on your favorite list. You can describe them as the five controlling faculties of faith, energy, mindfulness, concentration, and wisdom. Or you can describe them as the seven factors of enlightenment, which Joseph will discuss on another night. Nonetheless, whichever way you describe them, it is an understanding of what is actually happening here. That way one doesn't become merely a technician or an expert in a mechanical way, but to truly understand what is happening. It's a great protection because it frees us from that kind of narrowness or rigidity or attachment to view that comes from not understanding the actual depth of what's going on. As people get attached to different points of view, so they also get attached to different techniques. Not understanding that there are many different methods to cultivate these, these same mind states or mental factors. And so it's a great protection to help us towards greater detachment and make our path very broad. The third protection which is called in Pali Sakacha Nugahita is the same equivalent to loosening the earth around the roots. And what this means is having discussions with spiritual friends or interviews with a teacher or spiritual friend just enough and not too much to be able to explore parameters to be able to connect with a body of knowledge or a body of understanding that's based upon but is not strictly limited to our own understanding and experience to be able to connect to a much larger body of understanding this allows us to have a more enduring or even a more transcendent sense of balance because we can connect to something beyond our own immediate need. So for example, if someone has been straining in their practice and has been working with a certain sense of urgency that has turned into tension and agitation, their own immediate need may be to relax or to learn to be gentle or to be easy with themselves. And I have seen people for whom this need was so pressing that it became easy to forget that it was the immediate need. It wasn't the entire picture. And it's true the other way around as well. There are people who have a lot of equanimity and things are not especially disturbing or distressing to them. But there's very little sense of urgency. There's very little sense of power. 
in the meditation and their most immediate need is to develop that sense of power and intensity. And if people forget that they're doing that in order to create a sense of balance, then they also make carry on for a very long time. Defining the path as necessarily one way, getting more intense, getting less intense, doing this, doing that. And so being able to discuss the practice or the Dharma with spiritual friends, to be able to continue to explore various aspects of balance and a much larger picture, a much longer range picture, is a great protection for us. The fourth of these protections, samatha or samadhi, nugahita, which is equivalent to weeding the garden, is protecting ourselves from hindrances by putting in mental effort to get concentration or to attain concentration. Of the Eightfold Path, this incorporates right effort, right mindfulness, and right concentration. And with this carefully cultivated, then we have the power in our lives not to be tossed around by different mind states that come and go. So it's like taking hold of our own lives and being able to direct it. And so it's very, very powerful. There's one discourse in which the Buddha gave a riddle. This is the riddle. One should not allow the mind to wander without. Neither should one allow the mind to stop within. A bhikkhu or yogi who is able to be mindful in that way will eventually be able to extinguish all suffering. I'll read it again, just in case you didn't get it. (laughs) One should not allow the mind to wander without. Neither should one allow the mind to stop within. A bhikkhu who is able to be mindful in that way will eventually be able to extinguish all suffering. So this is actually a little bit tricky because if we're just supposed to stop the mind from wandering without, it may be difficult to actually do, to realize, but it's not that difficult to understand. Just keep the mind from wandering by holding it within. But if we're also not supposed to hold it within, and yet we're not supposed to let it wander without, it gets quite a bit trickier. It says in the sutta, that the Buddha gave this four-line riddle, and then he, as they say, disappeared into his perfume chamber, (laughs) leaving his listeners very puzzled and bewildered. And they couldn't figure out what the riddle was about. So they asked a monk. There was one particular monk named Venerable Katayana, who was the most prominent disciple for elaborating short and precise discourses given by the Buddha. (laughs) And he happened to be there at this time. And this is how he explained it. 
The first part of the riddle very much has to do with this fourth protection of developing samatha. He explained, if we just allow the mind to carry on through its normal pattern of conditioning, then it responds to visual objects and to sounds, to fragrance, to bodily contact, and to thoughts automatically, very mechanically. If we come into contact with a pleasurable object, (coughs) a tempting or desirable object, then the mind fills with greed or desire or attachment. If we come into contact with an unpleasant object, then the mind fills with aversion or disgust or fear. If we fail to know what's happening from moment to moment, not gaining an understanding into the true nature of reality, that means that the mind is veiled by ignorance or it's in a state of confusion or delusion. The mind that's filled with greed or with hatred or with delusion is the wandering mind. It's the mind that's run away and it's out of control. So the Buddha was actually at that time, in that part of the riddle, instructing his disciples not to allow the mind to be filled with the mental factors of greed and hatred and delusion. The question then comes up, do we then consider or do we regard seeing itself or hearing itself or smelling or tasting or touching as wandering mind? And the answer is no. We'll take an example. Say you're sitting peacefully in the hall and you begin to hear sounds. You hear bones creaking and you hear clothing, one article of clothing rubbing against another article of clothing and you hear creaking from the floor. And what's happening is that someone in the room nearby you is moving during the sitting. And the typical thoughts that may arise in the mind might range from envy and jealousy to sympathetic joy to compassion to impatience to dislike to hatred to murderous frenzy (laughs) and on and on. The actual sense process itself which is one of hearing is not skillful or unskillful. It's just bare seeing or bare hearing. It's after this that comes a series of mind moments of liking or not liking or getting confused or getting agitated. The point of the practice is to try to sharpen the mindfulness to the extent that the mindfulness is able to catch the hearing process before the mind states of greed or hatred or delusion can get strong and overwhelming. So if we simply hear, and we simply taste, and we simply see, then we don't say that the mind is wandering. It's the subsequent attachment, or subsequent pushing away, or subsequent delusion that we say is the wandering. So with diligent effort, (coughs) careful mindfulness, and collectedness of mind, we're protected from the forces of greed and hatred and delusion. And we also, in this way, because we are so present and so awake, have the opportunity to develop wisdom. Being with the present moment, 
and being mindful of whatever is occurring as it's occurring means that the mind is not wandering without. So it's not a question of not seeing and not hearing and not smelling and not tasting and not thinking. It's a question of not reacting with greed, hatred, and delusion. And so being as present as possible at the moment or close to the moment of occurrence of these different objects. So this is the fourth protection, protecting the mind from wandering without, from getting embroiled in these habitual patterns of greed and hatred and delusion. The fifth protection, which is Vipassana Nugahita, touches on the second part of that riddle, do not stop within. This protection is the protection through insight and it's especially connected with a meditative phenomena which is known as Nikanti. This is the phenomena of subtle craving or subtle clinging and it's very sneaky. It's sort of like the little insects which seem so innocuous, they seem so tiny and they get into the garden and they destroy the entire garden because they actually have a powerful impact, however innocuous they seem. This subtle craving or clinging can be to peace of mind or it can be to pleasurable aspects of concentration. It's very, very delicate. It's like if these insects were not only small but almost invisible and yet we're capable of destroying the garden. As we understand more and more through the practice, through undergoing the process, that everything that we can experience within the body and the mind, even the most extraordinary states imaginable, are impermanent and unsatisfactory and essencelessness. They are impermanent as long as they can be known, as long as they are conditioned in any way, even if they are radically different from ordinary waking consciousness. If they are impermanent, they're necessarily unsatisfactory because they hold the seeds of change and destruction within them. And if they can arise within the body and the mind, then they do not belong to anybody. They are not within willful control. And as we understand this more and more, that even the most extraordinary kinds of consciousness we can experience are impermanent and unsatisfactory and empty of self, then we become protected from this very subtle kind of holding on. So, for example, as we get, for a period of time, more able to focus on the object of meditation, and that sense of right aim gets better and more accurate, and we connect to the present moment's experience, then for that brief period of time, the mind becomes secluded from the hindrances of desire and anger and sloth and restlessness and doubt. This may last just a few moments. But in those few moments, there's a kind of comfort in the mind, which can be splendid. It's a very special kind of comfortable feeling. It's a very special kind of happiness, and it may be very new. 
And so there can be a subtle clinging to this feeling of composure, even though we see that it does not last. Or gradually we penetrate into the Dhamma and we can distinguish, perhaps for the first time, in an intuitive way, the distinction between mind and matter. Or we can comprehend the interrelatedness, the sense of cause and effect. And there's an accuracy and a precision to the mindfulness. And it's very easy to get attached to that. You start thinking, well, finally, you know, something's happening. My practice is really going great. And this is the way it's going to be. And then there's a sorry disappointment. And then there's another way we get attached. When we take a strong interest a kind of enthusiastic interest in what's going on, whether what is going on is painful or pleasant or neutral, just that interest itself coalesces the energy of the body and mind in such a way that this particular phenomena, which is called rapture, arises. Sometimes it's translated as rapture, sometimes it's translated as joy, sometimes simply as interest. And it's a particular type of energy and has lots of physiological components. The body and the mind get pervaded with lightness and agility. The person may feel like they're floating in the air, or they may feel like they're being pushed down to the ground or pulled over to one side. They may be swaying back and forth or rocking up and down. Sometimes the person may feel as though they're traveling on the surface of very rough waves, walking or sitting down. You might get goose flesh and a feeling of chills all over. You might see flashes of light that look like flashes of lightning. And there are all kinds of lists of the different kinds of experiences that people have from the force of rapture. Mostly, they are very pleasurable. Sometimes they're not. They come when, again, the mind is free for a certain period of time of the hindrances. And it's a very positive state because of that coalescing of energy. And it's very easy to develop a subtle craving, perhaps a subtle craving to the extraordinary kind of pleasure that's involved, or even if it's not pleasurable, to develop a craving for the intensity. You know, at least something is happening and it's very intense. And it's easy to get attached, to feel, oh, wow, this is great. So again, it's very subtle, because it is a positive state. So there's not a real delusion or self-deception involved, but there's this sticky kind of clinging involved. The same thing happens also in terms of catharsis. Sometimes there are huge energetic or emotional releases, which aren't at all bad. Sometimes they're, they're great and a great relief but they're not actually the essence of the practice, which is detachment and mindfulness, regardless of what is going on. And sometimes these things happen very naturally and it's very easy to get attached, again, because they feel like such a release and because they are intense, something is happening. And in fact, I can tell you from personal experience because I was attached to this for a very long time myself. And it, I used to have sittings 
a long time ago, maybe 14 years ago, 13 years ago, where between the force of rapture, which was coming up because I was very interested in what was going on and the actual energetic releases that were going on, <clears throat> where I was literally bouncing all over the place and if I wasn't hurtling around the room somehow, <laughs> I really thought it was a bad sitting and I felt very badly and I only felt happy when something very major was happening. As soon as it started, I would think, oh good, you know, this is going to be a good sitting. I'm really going to get rid of a lot of stuff or, you know, I'm really going to have a great release. And this went on and on and on and sometimes I was just elated because it was happening and sometimes I was really despondent because it wasn't happening which of course is not exactly the essence of the practice. And this went on and on and on, and I just kept doing it. And one day, someone said to me, I can't remember if it was Joseph or Menindra, but somebody said to me, freedom doesn't come from bouncing around, you know. <laughs> that's right. I said, okay, that's right. And I just gave it up because I saw that I was extremely attached, even though it was very subtle, to having things a certain way, so that I knew something was happening in my practice and that it was really going well. Over and over again, we have to remind ourselves that the essence of the practice is developing detachment and perfect equanimity towards all changing circumstances, however they might be. The same thing happens sometimes for people who go through different kinds of physical healing. Sometimes some very chronic ailments come to the surface, especially during intensive practice. And people do go through some intense healing experiences, which are quite genuine and they're very positive. But again, you have to watch for very subtle clinging or craving, trying to manipulate the experience rather than having it unfold on its own. So it's the subtle craving for what's actually a positive state. This is Nakanti, and this is the equivalent of being stopped within, because we're stuck. Any kind of clinging or any kind of craving, even if it is to the most subtle, exalted state of consciousness, is still craving and clinging, and so it is still being stuck. And this is the meaning of being stopped within. The protection of Vipassana, which is the last of the five, is to learn how not to get stuck within, to understand and to remember that the essence of the practice is awareness. It's just bare awareness from moment to moment. It's mindfulness, observing what's happening without greed, without hatred, and without delusion. Just to watch and to know it as it is. To free oneself from this subtle form of craving is actually a big relief. Otherwise, there is a sense of lack of surrender which gets to be quite painful after a while as we try to manipulate our experience. So it's equivalent in some ways to being in a bus that's being driven by someone else and trying to kind of lean over and grab the wheel and keep pushing the driver out of the way because we think we can do it better. 
and it's very entangling and messy and tiring as opposed to just giving up and letting go and surrendering to the process however it unfolds, however it changes and actually enjoying the ride. So we are protected by our understanding and by our wisdom that whatever can be known must change. And so it is not the end, it is not to be clung to. So there are these five ways of cultivating the plot of land to the point of bearing the fruit, ranging from the most obvious, the beginning, just fencing it in with morality, going through (coughs) hearing the Dhamma, discussing the Dhamma, developing the force of concentration so as not to be scattered and spread out and driven by the different things that arise in the mind. And then finally, the most subtle, which is the protection of vipassana, being able to be free from any kind of movement of mind to hold on or to push away. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.